It is such an honor to speak in the pulpit of one of my heroes. When I uh, have been serving with the IFCA, I want you to know that your pastor is a wonderful gatekeeper. He is the antivirus of, uh, of <laughs> not letting the Trojan horse of, uh, of the world penetrate uh, the, the Christian church. And, uh, and I really appreciate how he uh, uses the Bible as the, the antivirus software to, to keep things out. And, uh, and, and he, is real, uh, he is a real hero of mine and a mentor uh, and a role model. And that's why when that internship program came, I, I, I said, oh, Jordan, this would be so great for you to come to. And it would be great for Karina as well. And if there's any place other than home uh, that we would love to see them at, it's here. And so thank you so much for loving and inputting into Jordan and Karina. This is, uh, this is a topic today that might be unusual to end your holidays with, the topic of depression. But there are two holidays that our church family finds really difficult, uh, some people in, in the church, and, and it's Christmas and Mother's Day. For those that want to be mothers and can't for whatever reason, for those who have lost loved ones around the holidays, it makes the holidays tougher. This is coming right after Christmas, and you put so much into your Christmas holidays, and now it's over, and your kids are upset with the, the gifts you gave them. <laughs> you know, it can be a real difficult time uh, during this particular season. And so I, I wanted to go to this text of uh, scripture here in 1 Kings 19 to deal with an issue that can sometimes feel like it's a taboo issue. But it is not a taboo in the scripture. It's a very important issue in the scripture that impacts so many in the community, in the church, even in the ministry. And I know there's so many people here that have served the Lord so faithfully and so committedly that you pour your heart, soul, and energy. It's a, sometimes it can be very painful because you give so much. And we wonder, how can we respond? It is also an issue that can be very easily misunderstood, but yet the scriptures, the, the book of Psalms, addresses the issue of the downpressed heart so well. And if God knows that this is a battle that we go through, then it is something that we need to pay attention to. I know even in ministry, as uh, as Pastor Gary has been here 37 years. I've been at, uh, serving at our church for 36 years. And I've been attending for 41 years because I got saved at this particular church I'm pastoring at as a teenager. Uh, when we go through hardships, it, it really hurts because it's family. My nightmares, I had one the first night we were here in Springfield. And I, I, I had this dream that one of our charter members of our church was telling me he's leaving our church. I mean, that's, that's a pastor's nightmare. And, and it hurts because they're family. And I'm glad it was only a dream. I woke up and I said, whew, you know, thank you, Lord, that was only a dream. But there's so much heart and energy and so much uh, we put into ministry that sometimes we, uh, we can take on an Elijah syndrome. There was this one particular evening I received a phone call, and uh, 
uh, it was from a, a child of one of the ladies at our church and that his mom was committed into a hospital. And so I went to go visit her as fast as I could. And she was struggling with depression and, uh, and she had just lost her husband. Uh, another one of her sons was strung out on, on meth and, uh, and she had just lost her job. And, uh, you know, all of these things mounted and she just, she just shut down. And here was a lady who was, she was like the singer in our church. We, we called her our Karen Carpenter of our church. And uh, just, she had a voice like Karen Carpenter. And, and she just loved to serve the Lord. And so when I went to go visit her, she, uh, her, her first thought was, Pastor Steve, don't tell people at the church because I'm afraid of what they're going to think about me. And that broke my heart that she was afraid of what church was gonna think of her. And I wanted her to know what's more important is what God thinks of her. And it can be so easy for us to take our eyes off of God, what we need to realize at a time when we're at our lowest is that God is there for us, that he is faithful even when we're unfaithful. And so I read for her this passage in 1 Kings chapter 19. Depression, if I can just give a, a simple definition of it, it's a negative mindset accompanied by feelings of sadness and dejection. There's you know, a lot of ways that you can go to it. There's a lot of root causes and root symptoms and applications and, and dealing with it. But I just want to deal with just the very simple concept that sometimes when our emotions are pushed down, it's depressed. Very simple, nothing more connected to it than just being emotionally pressed down for whatever reason. And it's a difficult journey to go through. Lucy Swindoll describes depression as black as a thousand midnights in a cypress swamp. Loneliness that is indescribable, confusion regarding God, frustration with life and circumstances, the feeling that you have been abandoned, that you are worthless, unlovable, and the pain is excruciating. The psalmist writes, I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. The psalms are, are God's songs and response to being emotionally pressed down. One pastor by the name of Steve Blom wrote that the Psalms treat depression more realistically than many of today's popular books on Christianity and psychology. David and other psalmists often found themselves deeply depressed for various reasons. They did not, however, apologize for what they were feeling, nor did they confess it as sin. It was a legitimate part of their relationship with God. They interacted with him through the context of their depression. Depression is something that we experience and we go through. The cause might be sinful or righteous. The expression of it might be sinful or righteous. But the experience can be real for anybody. Even our Lord Jesus, as he anticipated the cross, as he went to the garden, said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And he asked his disciple friends to stay here and watch with me. 
as he was anticipating going to the cross to bear the wrath of God, which was intended for me, and yet he was going to be the substitute for the wrath of God facing the judgment that I deserved, for him to take on the sin of Steve Wong was horrific for our Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, but would become sin for us, that we can have the righteousness of God through him. But yet, having to bear our sin, having to face the wrath of God, was a cup that brought him to a point where he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And so as we go through times where after a holiday, after a spiritual victory, after, uh, for, what, for, for whatever reason, we can go through these difficult times. I, I want you to know you're not alone. Biblical heroes such as Elijah and David have gone through this experience. Even ministry heroes such as Charles Spurgeon or John Bunyan and Adoniram Judson and Lottie Moon would struggle with issues of depression. Howard Hendricks, Deal Moody, Isaac Newton, Charles Stanley, Martin Luther would all have their battles. Spurgeon said in one of his sermons that Christians' heaviness and rejoicing, I was lying upon my couch during this last week and my spirits were sunken so low that I can weep by the hour like a child and yet I knew not what I wept for but a very slight thing would move me to tears just now. We know that pain that can come from having our emotions pressed down. It can come from, from an, a number of reasons. It can come from a loss of a meaningful relationship, someone we love has passed on, or, or we've gone through a breakup or a divorce or there's a family history of abuse or neglect or growing up in a critical upbringing or past pain of victimization or catastrophe or, or just being sick. But there's a number of spiritual reasons that we can enter into this, this emotional depression. Saul became downpressed because of his own sin of anger. Elijah, because of self-pity. David, because of his unrepented sin. Jonah, because of his disobedience. Job, because of his personal loss. Saul, because of spiritual affliction. And so we come to Elijah and we see what are some of the causes of his struggle here in 1 Kings chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so that the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make you your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So the first thing that happens is that Elijah let down his armor. This, this follows 1 Kings 18, where we see this epic battle. 1 Kings 17, Elijah predicts a drought for three years. 1 Kings 18, Ahab, the king, blames Elijah for everything that Israel's going through. So Elijah says, it's not me, Ahab, it's you and you're following the, the, the false god Baal. 
they had this great challenge that went on. He says, all right, you take your 450 prophets of Baal, and you go ahead and add your 400 prophets of Asherah, you know, and in this, what, what would be in human terms, a 950 to one, you know, kind of a battle, yet, you know, God plus one is a majority. So, so there was a great victory that Elijah got to witness and God defeating the, 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 these proponents of Baal and Asherah. And Elijah boldly proclaims, how long will you falter between two opinions? The pagan priest called for their pagan god to burn the bull, and they would cut themselves and mutilate themselves, but there was no fire, and Elijah builds his altar, pours water on it, and uh, pours four water pots three times, and God responds with fire. I mean, this is an incredible, incredible battle and scene. It was, it was spiritual. It wasn't one with weapons. But here, Elijah witnessed something tremendous and used him in such a tremendous way. And yet, you hear Elijah's pride in this chapter. Verse 4, it is enough. I'm no better than my father. Verse 10, I have zealously served the Lord. Verse 14, I have zealously served the Lord. Elijah's problem was the area of pride here because instead of looking at what God had done through him, he said, look what I did for you, God. He needed to see a spiritual optometrist because he had an eye problem. <laughs> and it can be very easy for us to, uh, see, really the, the issue that I want to talk about today, the key word I want to talk about today is perspective. We take our perspective off the faithfulness of God and we put it on ourselves. So Elijah takes his armor off because of his pride. He starts thinking of, look what I did for the Lord. And then he becomes vulnerable to spiritual attack. So the first problem is that of spiritual warfare in the mind. He took his armor off. And then he let the victory get to his head. I used to take Mondays off. This is way back in ministry when I was still single. And, uh, and I didn't have the joy of my wife or my family. But, you know, being a, being a single pastor, I would go through what was called Monday morning blues. So now my day after Wednesday. So that way I could go into the office and be with my staff because I could just kind of just feel the, the blah after a, a spent Sunday. But those are some of the things that we need to guard ourselves. After this, this great Christmas celebration, and, the, and you're really cute. I, saw, I watched your, uh, your kids' program, uh, and, uh, and all that effort that you put into it. Afterwards, you just say, I am totally spent. I'm so tired, God. Look at all that I did for you. And we start letting the victory get to our head. Secondly, he let the vixen get to his head. Jezebel sends a message to Elijah saying, you got 24 hours to live, buddy. I'm going to send all my hitmen. They're going to look after you. You got nowhere to hide, just like John Wick, right? So, you know, you're, you're, you're in trouble. Wherever you go, there's a hitman looking after you. So, so, uh, so here is this very wicked woman, F.B. Meyer writes of Jezebel, having an indignation that knew no bounds. She was like a tigress robbed of her young, crafty, unscrupulous, and intriguing. She molded Ahab to her mind. She had control of the northern kingdom, 
and the southern kingdom through, her, uh, through the marriage of her stepdaughter, Athaliah, to the house of Judah. So she had profound influence. She had eyes everywhere. And when Elijah gets word, Jezebel is going to kill you, he has that seed implanted in his head that there is a power that is greater than God is to save him. It's perspective. He starts to think, oh, she's a greater threat than God is able to protect me from. And so he starts to run. And, uh, and so he has allowed this seed that there is a greater threat. You know, we've all learned from the wise sages, Bob and Larry, that God is bigger than the bogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV, right? I mean, we know that God is greater than our biggest threats. But Elijah lost that. He forgot that in his perspective that Jezebel was a greater threat. And that's what the devil does when he targets the mind. Jezebel planted that threat. And a person who is struggling through depression focuses on that threat being bigger than the Lord, that, that God is not able to take care of this big threat because we think it's so profound. That's why the key to spiritual warfare is in the mind. We know that the weapons are not carnal, but mighty for God to pull down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Elijah allowed his mind to consider a thought greater. So his pride said, look what I did, and he let the victory get to him. And then he allowed the vixen, Jezebel, to plant into his head a thought that there's a greater threat than God is able to handle. And so this is something we need to guard, is our minds. Puritan Richard Baxter advises those suffering with depression he says, avoid your musings and exercise not your thoughts now too deeply nor too much. Long meditation is a duty to some, but not to you. No more than it is a man's duty to go to church that has his leg broken or his foot out of joint. He must rest and ease it till it be set again and strengthened. You may live in the faith and fear of God without setting yourself to deep disturbing thoughts. So he wrote that in his book, The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow, Richard Baxter in uh, 1838. And so here, this, this, is this, this is wise advice from a Puritan who says, there are sometimes you need to not think too much because then you allow these musings to convince you that there's something greater than your faithful God. And so spiritual warfare was the first cause. The second cause is physical and emotional exhaustion. Physical and emotional exhaustion. And when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. This is a 90 mile run from Jezreel to Beersheba. You know, I, I, I think people who run marathons, I admire them, but I think they're nuts. I get tired driving 26 miles, you know, much less people running 26 miles. My, my brother-in-law ran, uh, like in consecutive days at, down at uh, Disney, he did this uh, uh, 10K, then he did a, a half marathon, and then he did a full marathon after that. If it's just not enough torture, 
That's not as far as Elijah had to run to get away from the hit called out by Jezebel. I mean, not only was he running, and he wasn't running for pleasure, but he was running for his life. So you can imagine the fear and the adrenaline and the suspicion that is just depleting not only his physical, but his emotional energy. And there are times we can face physical and emotional exhaustion. Even in ministry, J.B. Phillips, who you might know of being the uh, translator of uh, that translation named after him, he wrote that, The feeling of being utterly drained of all emotion and desire persisted, and I simply ceased to work. He shut down. It happens, even to people in ministry. And so here, spiritual warfare, where his mind allowed a greater threat in, physical and emotional exhaustion, and then here's a third thing that that was very unwise on Elijah's part. In verse 3, it says, and he left his servant there. Personal isolation. He isolated himself from accountability, from encouragement, from the one another's of the New Testament. He went by himself and he left Gehazi, his servant, who was a spiritual accountability and a help. He went on his own. And it is a common tendency when People walk away from God to avoid others. And and this is when we need each other more than we need to be alone. The fourth cause is a faulty perspective. A faulty perspective. Verse four. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father. And there's a lot of things wrong in this verse. And, and I'm not saying there's something wrong with the scripture. I'm saying there's something wrong with Elijah, and, I, and the scripture's just being clear about what Elijah is struggling with. The first clue about his faulty perspective is his senseless praying. He prayed that he might die to take my life. John Bunyan Prayed the prayer, oh Lord, just take my life. And we see him as a great hero. Charles Spurgeon said, my soul is cast down within me. I feel as, I, as if I rather die than live. All that God has shown me seems to be forgotten. And my spirit flags and my courage breaks down. I need your prayers. And so here as we see great heroes of faith, they can pray some dumb prayers. And that is a clue that we have lost a perspective of the faithfulness of God. And we have started to construct in our minds what it means to be spiritually healthy and emotionally healthy, and then we start to lay our demands on God. He was wondering where God is. And he's wondering why God. And yet, God answers to that. But yet, here's the prayers that the psalmist echoes. Psalm 42, 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? See, in our tears, we can lose that perspective and say, where is my God? And yet, the depressed need to refocus 
on God as the one who receives them and their weakness and pain. So it's, it's correcting our vision. It's going, to, it, it, it's, it's going to a spiritual optometrist to fix that eye problem and to be able to focus on the Lord, such as Psalm 38 that says, Lord, all my desires before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. So we need to correct these, these silly prayers that we pray. Oh, Lord, all right, just take me if you don't want me here. You know, why are you thinking this? The, the second nutty thing that Elijah says, if you would pardon my French, the second nutty thing here is he says, it is enough. It is enough. As if we're Scotty and we say, I, Captain, the engines can't take it anymore. You know what I mean? Are we the ones to tell God how much we can take, or does he know how much we can take? Paul, Paul Tauchus says that self-pity is one of the expressions of my self-love. And for him to put on this limit before God, to say it's enough, now he's the one who's sovereign over God. So we, we see senseless praying, self-pity, and then he says here in this verse, Unwarranted comparisons. For I am no better than my fathers. Elijah, who's comparing you to Abraham here? Who's comparing you to your spiritual fathers here? And yet, when we get into this self-pity, we start making these comparisons. Oh, I'm no better than him. I'm no better than her. You know, and then we in ministry, we can fall into this too. We start making these unwarranted comparisons. Oh, how big is your church? You know, uh, or, or missionaries will say, well, how fast did you raise your support? Or, uh, or how much money do you make? Or students will say, what did you get on your SAT? Or right, what role do you have at church? Right? So we start making these comparisons, and, and he's not asking what it is and what our titles are. He just wants us to be faithful with the spiritual gifts that we have. And, and yet, we're making these unwarranted comparisons. And then, we see in verse 10, if you jump over to verse 10, we see his martyr syndrome. I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, for your children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. <laughs> Will Robinson. No, he is. I alone am left. You, you, you can see the, the I problem. They seek to take my life. Right? I mean, how, you can circle every time he says I here. And, and you can see his I problem. He is struggling with the area of subjectivity. And what he needs is objectivity here. And th this is what we need to help people with is to gain a perspective of not our myopia, but God's bird's eye view. Right? We, we need to say God, God sees the past and the future and the present all at the same time. He's got this. And yet, here we're thinking, oh, it's just me. And what did God have to do? He had to remind Elijah, you are not alone. There are 7,000 other prophets who have not bowed their knees to Baal. Elijah, you're not the only guy going through this. There are 7,000 others just like you. So stop taking your eyes on yourself alone and say, hey, there's 7,000 other brothers you can encourage through what you're going through right now. But yet he was going through that martyr syndrome. 
So how does God cure the spiritual depression that Elijah's going through? I really love this passage because we see the gentle hand of God wrapping his arms around a self-pitying, self-centered um, servant of God who has, poured, who has poured out his life, lost a little bit of perspective here, and, and how God is getting him back. Take a look at verse 5. First, he cares for our, our physical needs. He cares for our physical needs. And then he lay and he slept under a broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head, it was a cake. I don't know if it was angel food cake. It certainly wasn't devil food cake. <laughs> Strawberry shortcake, I don't know. But, but here was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. Seen gas. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back to him a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and he ate and he went on the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. You know what the angel did first? The angel didn't come and knock him on the head and just, you know, here's what some Chinese do when you're in trouble. They give you the knuckles and they go, the, they call it the lingok, which is a, a hard nut, Chinese nut, and they go on your forehead. Right. Don't do that. Right. That's not prescribed. But, but, but the angel didn't come up and, and start kicking him around saying, what's wrong with you, Elijah? Why are you such a fool? He didn't say that. He wanted him to rest and he wanted him to eat. You know, sometimes we're like the, uh, the patient on the psychiatrist's couch saying, doctor, nobody takes me seriously anymore. And the doctor says, you're kidding. <laughs> he didn't get that treatment. God continually took care of Elijah through a raven, through a widow, and now through an angel. I mean, think of the care of God the compassion of God. God understands our exhaustion. That's why I so love the passage where Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the grace of our God who is not a pushing us into spiritual hoops to earn our salvation through a religion. But as this come to me, I am inviting you to come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you spiritual rest. I will do the work of salvation for you so you don't have to do it. That's the kind of God we have. He understands our exhaustion, whether it's physical or spiritual. He understands our limitation that we can't save ourselves, even emotionally or from our sins. That's why Jesus did that and says, just come to me. That's the care and mercy we have in our, in our Lord. Secondly, not only does he care for our spiritual needs, but, but we are to concentrate on God's powerful word over dramatic circumstances. Now, I've spent years trying to figure this out, and I'm sure if I don't get this right, Pastor Gary will correct me. But Elijah comes to a cave and he spent the night in that place and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, that's always a good question. What are you doing here? 
So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets and the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before God. And behold, the Lord passed, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, and the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. God demonstrated cataclysmic events. But his presence was not in it. The the strong wind that broke rocks, the earthquake, the fire, all had been used as precursors for the the coming of the Lord. These are all signs of the coming of the Lord. But note, the, the Lord wasn't in it. And I wondered why he did this. These cataclysmic events. And yet, his presence was not in these cataclysmic events. Because I think a lot of times we look for cataclysmic events to be our comfort, to be our, our, our sense of, see, I told you so. We often do that like David counted people and depended on numbers and not God. Or Israel, when attacked by Sennacherib and the Assyrians, depended on Egypt and not God. And I think we can depend on cataclysmic events when what we should be listening to is for God's still small voice, right? We're looking around to see what's gonna happen rather than reading his word. God's voice is sufficient, even in a whisper. And yet we don't want the whisper, do we? We want the big, loud bang. But he speaks to us in a whisper, and that's all we need. All we need is his voice that says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation will make a way of escape that you can bear it. You know, those are great words, but those aren't always the things that we want to hear. Right? We want to see something devastating. We want to see something dramatic. We want to see something that we can post on Instagram. Instead of listening to God's still small voice, that he is our refuge and our strength. The third thing that he tells us to do in verses 13 to 18. He says, um, and I'll I'll jump uh, jump down a little bit, but he says, I want you to anoint Hazael as king of Syria. I want you to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. The third thing he does is not only speaking through a small voice and caring for physical uh, and physical and emotional needs, but he says, I want you to commit yourself to others. Stop looking at yourself, Elijah, and start pouring your life into your Elisha and Jehu and Hazael. Take your mind off yourself and invest it in others. I went through... Probably the deepest depression I went in my life was right out of college. Right, this is before I met my wife, uh, and uh, God blessed me with, with my wonderful wife. But before, I went through a breakup in college, and I was just, I was just sad. I, I, was, uh, I was recently saved, but 
Instead of serving the Lord, I was now just, I would go on to the piano after church and play Karen Carpenter's Rainy Days and Mondays Always Get Me Down and, you know, just all, all the depressing stuff. And, and, uh, and my, my Christian friends would, would come around me and they were very comforting for a while. And then afterwards, they just got tired of the act. And he just, Steve, okay, it's enough. Will you get off yourself? You know, would you just you know, stop focusing on yourself? And I needed that rebuke. And I said, thank you. I, I, I needed that. And so what I, what, I, what, I, what I told the Lord I would do is, okay, I'm going to start a new ministry. I'm going to start a junior high group in our church. And so I gathered up uh, another young man who has now been my uh, co-pastor for the last three decades. And, and we started a junior high group uh, along with another couple in our church. And, and then just to pour my life into others and to take that focus off myself was just, was just what the Lord ordered. And so how do we deal with this? Just as we conclude, I, I want to point to what our Lord dealt with when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane just as we wrap things up. Number one, reach out for help. You know, Jesus doesn't need help because he's God, but to show us that uh, uh, what, what is needed. He asks Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, he took them with him as he approached the Garden of Gethsemane, where he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, stay here and watch with me. And it's not time to leave our Gehazi. It's time to bring a Peter, James, and John with us. Secondly, tell God of your pain. God, uh, Jesus was very frank to the Lord. He went a little farther, fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Be honest. Tell God of your hurt. Ask him for his perspective and for his joy. Third, identify the source of our depression. Jesus knew it was this cup, this cup, which is the wrath of God that was going to be spent on him on my behalf to be my savior. Identify what we've lost. Evaluate why God permitted us to lose what we've lost, whether it was a loved one to cancer or, or you know, the, the, the tornado that blew through. Why, why would God allow this? Avoid wrong choices to compensate for our depression. You know, a, a lot of times we think, oh, well, because I'm feeling so, so low, I'm going to do other things to make myself feel better. Take drugs, drink alcohol, indulge in uh, illicit fantasies, or, or be a thrill seeker in reckless driving to experience a rush or dare death. We must be careful of, compensating a low feeling with a high feeling. Or as Jay Adams says in his Christian Counselor man, Manual, that we don't use elation as an overcorrection for depression because it will not pull us back to the center. <clears throat> Remember, the cure is perspective. And then to go from uh, this sense of depression to swing on a pendulum, a pendulum to elation it doesn't give us a solution. It doesn't put us in God's perspective. It doesn't solve the problem. It is only an emotional release that doesn't answer anything. And so we, we must understand 
that we, that we have to have God's perspective when we're going through the dark valleys of the shadow of death. And then the fourth thing is to do God's will even when it's hard, because Jesus concluded, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Do God's will even when it's hard. And so I hope that this passage has been an encouragement to you because Elijah can be a lot like us. We can pour our heart into ministry, and then, we, then when we hit rough times, we can look back at God and say, well, look what I've done for you. How come I'm going through this? These past couple of years have been the most difficult in ministry. After 37 years in ministry, 36 years in ministry, you would think that ministry would get easier, and it's only gotten harder. I mean, we've gone through lawsuits. It was, it was a, a, a kind of a Christian counseling versus, you know, a, a mental health kind of a, a battle that, that we, we were getting sued for. We would do the same thing again because we think we're faithful to the word. You know, but, but boy, that, were, that was such an emotional battle. And, you know, and then people leave church. You know, that's always hard. And, and then this building program has just been, a, it's just been nuts just to go through this building program. I mean, I, I was, to have our first service in, in, in a year and seven months was, was, uh, was just profound. I mean, we were meeting online, but each time we, we keep thinking we're close to have services, you know, then the contractor says, oh, well, this isn't ready yet. You know, so it, it's, it was just those kind of emotional tolls. And you just, you go through all of these things and, and you think, why me, Lord? And yet when we look back, it's, it's, it's made us trust in him more. That's why. You know, and, and, and that's why we count all joy when we fall in various trials. Because we know that the, the, the development of our patience and faith will produce in us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why. But we need his perspective to do that. And I, I hope that this passage be an encouragement to, uh, for you. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for what you've taught us through Elijah. And Father, I know a lot of times we can feel sorry for ourselves, even in serving you, as Elijah did. And oh, Father, when we think that our Lord Jesus Christ would be incarnated, as we sang about today, to be our Savior, that he wants to save us to the uttermost, that he doesn't just save us for eternity, but he saves us from our negative thoughts, from our selfish perspective, and from our emotional uh, pushdowns. Father, thank you for loving us in every way through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.